This is episode 8 of the Disobedient Buildings podcast, an AJC-funded project at the University of Oxford. Our focus is on the everyday lives of people living in aging blocks of flat in three European countries, the UK, Romania and Norway. My name is Inge Daniels and in this episode I will be joined by Anna Anderson and Gabriela Niculescu to further explore some of the key issues raised in season one. We will discuss what welfare actually means in our three field sites. In episode 5, Jackie Peacock from Advice for Renters expresses her concern about the demise of the welfare state in the UK. Somebody had come along one government one day and said, right, in our election manifesto, we're going to rip up the welfare state. They would never have got elected, but it's been salami slice. So every single little slice people haven't noticed. We don't have a welfare state in this country anymore. That's, that's why I am bringing the people who are suffering now to get them to understand this isn't inevitable. We could have a welfare state again. Of course, the weakening of this relationship of trust, if you want, between citizens and their governments in Europe over the past 40 years is also central to our project. The three countries we study each represent an example of a European welfare state that is struggling with social and economic challenges on the ground. And this in turn, of course, had a huge impact on the everyday health and well-being of the inhabitants of the blocks we study. So how would you summarize the major changes to the welfare systems that have taken place in Romania and Norway over the past 30, 40 years? In Romania, I think the change from a socialist state to a liberal and neoliberal government was so drastic that people cannot even really imagine what was the effect on the everyday lives of people. For example, um, the social protection benefits that are usually transfers in cash or in kind made to relieve households and individuals of the burden of one or more social risks or needs in Romania are calculated based on the income from 2008. But the income from how many years ago? 13? It's so different from the needs of the people today. So 400,000 people that receive these social protection benefits struggle really to live with the amount they receive. Other than that, there are 11,000 people who have uh, no employment or no benefits at all. And the question that might um, be obvious is why? It could be that they don't know how to apply for these benefits. Um, There are not enough people employed to explain and to help them um, get these benefits, but it's also possible it will that they work on the black market, this meaning even different, very different sites, including agriculture and to be paid by day. This is in sharp contrast with the, uh, how the situation of the social protection was during state socialism, uh, where in theory, the state catered for everybody and work was mandatory. In fact, it was a kind of um, urban legend. Uh, if, if a policeman or policewoman would, would see somebody on the street during uh, a work time or work hour, and that person would not go to work, they would be taken from the street and put into prison. Work was mandatory. 
And this is interesting because through work, people would receive uh, accommodation in flats built by the state. So they would rent from the state or people would live in uh, flats that they would buy, but these flats would be projects designed and run by state enterprises. So one can summarize and say that in socialist Romania, there was workfare and not welfare. But after the change of the regime um, in 1990s, um, in Eastern Europe, the state withdrew massively from the life of its citizens. Uh, the flats that were previously rented were bought by those who rented them, usually at very small prices. State companies collapsed slowly. Public hospitals education was underfunded for 30 years. In theory, all employees benefited from public services, but in reality, the salaries of doctors, nurses, professors, and many others, you know, of previous of state institutions were so small that some people would tell me a story. They didn't have enough money to, to buy food and put on the table. I think um, the shift from state socialism to capitalism, it's visible you know, on the life of people living in the blocks um, in small cities in Romania, but also in Bucharest. Yeah, and uh, I mean, in the Norwegian context, although you have uh, traces of what we today would call the, the welfare state back to like the 19th century, the model that we know today was very much developed uh, post-war and, and gained foothold in the immediate post-war years when um, Norway uh, was suffering from being at war for five years and having to rebuild the country. And I mean, there are certain traits about this welfare uh, state that are quite key, such as the fact that the welfare system in Norway is universal. So that means that it is for, for everyone and it's not means tested. So even if you're very, very rich, you can get access to this, uh, these services. And, and it's, a, it's a guarantee, basically, for its members that in case of illness or any uh, unforeseen life events, unemployment, aging, and so on, then you, you would be taken care of. And this care could either be benefits or it could be services such as hospitals or, or public schools and, and so on. And another key thing is that uh, services provided by the state uh, should be of high quality. So it shouldn't be the fact that richer people could go to private services and get quicker or better care. The state should be able to offer uh, the same services. Uh, and, and that is also to, to even out the playing field. It's a very comprehensive system embedded in you know, many areas of society. And the idea is that you know, the difference in income and, and um, uh, wealth and, and services available to you should be quite equal throughout the country. In the 70s and 80s, the system did start receiving criticism, especially from, you know, the right wing politicians um, arguing that, you know, the state had too much of a control, uh, saying that, you know, these uh, support systems could potentially lead to, to people not working and people not, you know, bothering to work and contribute because you had the support system. Another thing is, you know, over the today compared to what it was like in 1945 today we do have a lot more immigration uh, we do also see an increased aging population 
And that is putting pressure on the social welfare system in Norway. And I think this system is continuing um, to be developed and changing and, and definitely discussed and debated. So uh, in the UK, uh, then the welfare system um, perhaps uh, can be traced back if you want to a broad set of social services for people who could not care for themselves. Um, I mean, with this, I mean like the elderly, children, and mothers. In a way, it was enshrined in what's called the poor law. Uh, this is um, a law that went through various transformations since the 17th century, and that stresses uh, communal responsibility for the less fortunate members of our society. However, it's after World War II that we really see the development of a social security system that provided protection for all citizens uh, from the cradle to the grave. This system uh, consists of four cornerstones, which is public provisioning of education, social security, healthcare, and housing. And uh, the most well-known example is of course the NHS or the National Health Service, which was established in uh, 1948 and which still 95% uh, of the population in the UK makes uh, use of this service, which is quite uh, amazing. I think it's uh, based on needs, and it's free uh, for all at the point of delivery. This uh, social security system is paid for through taxation, or at least partly paid for, I think. Uh, it's called national insurance contributions. That is a tax on earnings and profits that all people that work uh, pay. And in exchange, they are entitled for certain benefits like uh, unemployment, uh, disability support, uh, pensions or maternity leave. However, like we've heard in the other two countries in, in the UK as well, there were from the start already actually many cracks in this system. So um, it's been argued that it was mainly the middle classes who actually have profited from uh, the welfare state, if you want. And millions of people already uh, right after the war continue to live in poverty. During the 1960s, there were the first critiques of talking about the longevity and the validity of this system, but it's actually during the 1980s in particular that we see a real decline of the welfare state. And uh, this was linked with a growing belief that the self-regulated market economy is the way forward. And this is then called the so-called uh, neoliberal turn or neoliberalism. And in the UK, this is very much associated with Thatcher, but it also has been embraced, for example, by new labor since the 1990s. What did this actually consist of? Well, first of all, it was the privatization of a huge number of state-owned assets. And if you want, this is still happening today. And during my field work, again and again, participants uh, would point out to me when we did, uh, or when I did their walks with them, uh, they would point out buildings, public buildings that have been recently sold off to the private sector. Examples are buildings that housed uh, trainee nurses, uh, police officers' families, actually GP services, so actually uh, where the doctor doctors would, <laughs> would see you. These buildings have been sold off en masse and been turned into hotels, uh, destroyed or uh, expensive uh, private flats, if you want. So it's kind of interesting how this process is still ongoing. Another way in which we see uh, this uh, decline of the welfare state is uh, through the outsourcing of public services to private companies. 
but also the deregulation and decline in social and environmental responsibilities. And of course, the current issues surrounding climate change and global warming is one consequence of that. And uh, the letter that we asked people to write about what worried them, many, many people mentioned actually climate change and global warming and privatization or the decline of the welfare state. So it's interesting that it uh, is a topic that is quite alive um, in people's everyday uh, conversations as well, I think. But I also want to point out that in episode two, uh, Danny Dorling, a professor of geography at the University of Oxford, also discussed these consequences of these changes that have happened over the past uh, four decades, which in the UK was coupled with what we call austerity politics, so policies. And this has led to a huge economic inequality uh, with the gap between the extremely rich and the extremely poor only growing. And more recently, perhaps this has led to anti-globalization, anti-migration sentiment, and then eventually that culminating in what we call Brexit. Thank you for listening to the Disobedient Buildings podcast, edited by Anna Anderson and produced by Jack Soper. If you want to hear more, go to our website on www.disobedientbuildings.com or search for our podcast where you normally find your podcasts. In the next episode, the Disobedient Buildings team will discuss what the impact has been of neoliberal reforms on housing in London, Bucharest and Oslo.